You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Well, good morning. Good to see you guys here today. If you've got your Bibles, let's go to John chapter 12. Uh, Man, just hearing some of the things Brant shared is exciting, isn't it? Um, Just to see and hear what God's been doing over the last uh, year, and it's not even over yet. Uh, We're only just a little over halfway there. So uh, last Sunday, of course, awesome Sunday. If you missed it, I hate that for you, but um, we had over a little right at 1,200 people here, um, baptized 30 people and eight brand new decisions last Sunday. So um, pretty phenomenal, awesome day. Um, And so, you know, when I come on, on Sunday mornings, I expect the worship service to be powerful I mean, I'm, I, I look out at the crowd as I preach, and I'm thinking, Who's, whose life is God changing right now, you know? Like, what, what is God doing? And so it intrigues me, and I'm always surprised to hear uh, what, he, what he's up to in your life. And so I appreciate the emails and, and uh, the messages to, to just ex- kind of share your story. So keep those coming. Um, last week was an incredible worship service here, but uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went to a different religion, uh, to a different worship service, and um, I, I, I went, and, and there are literally millions of people in this religion. There's, they're really kind of unclear how many followers um, there actually are involved in this, but, you know, I went to this worship service, and the music was just phenomenal. Um, the, the, the lights and kind of the whole experience was just incredible. The, the people there were just so super friendly. Everybody was excited. Everybody was into it. Um, I mean, all, all the people were singing. All the people were engaged. Um, it was a, a, a three-hour uh, worship service, and, and like nobody complained about how long it was. It was truly phenomenal. One of the things about this worship experience is that most of the followers of this religion are teenage girls. <laughs> so I was a little out of place um, because I was at a Taylor Swift concert <laughs> with a bunch of Swifties, and. Um, you know, when I, read the, when I read the Bible and I see all of the descriptions of what authentic, true worship really is, um, I, I see demonstration of, of a heart affection towards someone or something. And, and when I was at this concert, you know, as I'm enjoying it, incredible experience, by the way, um, it was phenomenal to see all the things that are going on around me. Like, like these girls and even their moms and a few dads like me were there with their daughters. And um, like, like true heart love, heart affection, heart connection for Taylor. I mean, everybody sang the songs. Everybody was energetic. Everybody was excited. And it was truly worship. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the reality is we were created to worship. Everybody in this room is worshiping something or someone. And so because God created us to do that, he created us to have a heart affection for something, someone, and to drive our life there, to drive our attention there, to drive our our time, our energy, and our resources too. Now the problem is he created us to worship him. But we replace, you know, worship of the true God for little gods, little G gods. And so we put things like Taylor Swift and and we put things like hobbies and sports and those kinds of things, business, success, money, those types of things in the position of God and we we worship them. And and the the, the thing about this worship service that Taylor was putting on um, was was, um, similar in some ways to a, a normal Christian church. Uh, as far as the flow of the service, but, but there were a lot of differences that I wanted to point out. And one of the differences is nobody complained about how long it was, you know? Nobody complained the, 
about the fact that we had to give our offering before we showed up. <laughs> you know, that was a requirement, you know. And Taylor, she wasn't, you know, she wasn't shy about that fact, you know. And so no, nobody was, was uh, weirded out by the fact that everybody was singing. Nobody was weirded out by people crying, like crying as Taylor like swung around on this little stage deal that was incredible, like, and she was like close to everybody, and, and like all these people falling out. I mean, even grown women falling out because, you know, Steven Tyler from Aerosmith showed up and sang a song with her, and so I thought the lady next to me was going to like have a conniption fit. She was shaking and trying to video with her phone at the same time, and you're just like, really, really? This is happening right now. And it's like, this is worship. This is the definition of worship. Here, here, here are some other things that I didn't hear. I didn't hear people complaining about the traffic before and after the worship service. I didn't hear anybody complaining that it lasted three hours. I didn't hear anybody complaining, you know, about, um, you know, how people were, were too into it. People were too excited I mean, these girls, they were dressed up, you know, they had signs and they had everything, you know. And, and, and so I saw the excitement, I saw the energy, I saw all of this taking place. Taylor, she taught for about 10 minutes on love, you know, and uh, that was interesting. But she taught and nobody sat down, like nobody got tired of standing. We stood the whole time. I took a few breaks, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but, but. Most people stood the whole time. You know, nobody said, this place is too big. I want to go to a place where everybody knows my name. Nobody said that, you know. It's interesting, but no doubt worship was taking place. And this was worship like I don't typically see on Sunday mornings anywhere in our country. And so what I want to do today is I want us to think through the lens of worship as we see some demonstrations of worship in John chapter 2. And I want us to begin to recognize what it is in our life that we really are worshiping. Because whatever really stirs your heart is what you worship. Whatever you have affection towards, whatever gets you going, whatever you're spending a majority of your attention and time and energy towards is what you're worshiping. And so when you look at the clues and when you look at the realities of your life, I mean, if you're, if you're intentional about really trying to discover what this is, you're gonna find that seated on the throne of your heart is perhaps success or perhaps money or maybe even your kids or your wife or your kids' success because those are the things that you give the majority of your thoughts to, the majority of your money to, the majority of your energy toward. And it is those things in our life, little idols in our life that we end up worshiping instead of worshiping the one true Savior. And so as we think about worship today, I'm going to give you four requirements of authentic worship of Jesus. Okay, so let's dive into chapter 12, verse 1. And it says this, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help, him, help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. If you're taking notes today, I want you to think through this. Real worship requires sacrifice. It requires sacrifice. Here we see a picture of sacrifice from Mary to Jesus. And so think about the stage here. Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. And so they are, they're basically throwing a party. They're having a dinner in honor of this huge thing. He's, he's back from the dead. That's a big deal. So let's party. And so they're eating a meal. Uh, Martha is serving. G, uh, Mary is worshiping Jesus. And Lazarus is reclining at table. He's like kicked back at the table, just chilling. Can you imagine the conversation that morning or that afternoon, whenever it was? It's like, bro, seriously, so like, how was it? What was happening? You know, the conversations are happening. They're excited. And then Mary brings out this bottle of ointment. And this wasn't just any kind of, of bottle. You know, usually when a, when a big bottle of something comes out, there's something good about to happen. You know, there's a celebration about to happen. And this was no different because this was an expensive bottle of what they called nard. And so it was an ointment that they would have used to freshen up. You know, back in the day at this time, they didn't take showers every day. You know, they weren't, you know, Axe had not been invented, deodorant had not been invented, um, Old Spice was not around. And so they had some stink to their life, right? I mean, they smelled a little bit, especially their feet. And so what they would use ointment like this for is really to kind of freshen up and, and smell better. And so she brings out this bottle and about 11 and a half ounces worth, which is a ton, like a pound it says here, is poured out on the feet of Jesus, and she doesn't use a towel or a rag or something like that to wash his feet. She uses her own hair. Now this is significant. This is an act of worship, a sacrificial act of love and devotion for Jesus like no other. As a disciple, they, the disciples would have been seen as a servant of Jesus. So any disciple of a master at this time, of their teacher, they would have been a servant to him. And, and, and so that wouldn't have been uncommon, but... Even a disciple was never required to take care of the feet of their master. Like that was for the lowest of the lowest servants. I mean, this was the stinkiest part of people, right? And I mean, if you think their armpits smelled, their feet were even worse. And so taking care of somebody's feet was for slaves and servants. And, and so here Mary is at the feet of Jesus, weeping, giving probably the most expensive thing that she owned to Jesus. And as she's doing this, she's using her hair. I mean, this is a sacrificial act of worship. I mean, just think of the most expensive thing that you own. Imagine giving that thing to Jesus. For some of you, it's probably your house or maybe your retirement fund. Like giving the most expensive thing you have for the work of ministry. That would be a huge sacrifice. And that's what she's doing here. Now, the bottle would have been so expensive. It would have been uh, compared to a year's wages at that time. So if you translate that into our day and time, a year's wages in our area is somewhere around forty dollars to $50,000. So whatever this thing was that she's giving, it was worth up to $50,000 when you compare it to our standards today. Can you imagine giving that much to Jesus? And so this is a sacrificial act of love. What are you sacrificing for Jesus? What are you giving to him? What are you offering to him from what 
he has given to you. You see, anytime you're about to do something sacrificial for Jesus and worship him in this way, there's always going to be a Judas that shows up to try to distract you. And sure enough, the real Judas shows up. (laughs) And the real Judas here says something that sounds so spiritual on the surface. But when you dig in and you reveal his true motives, then you begin to understand who and what he is trying to actually accomplish It says here that Judas used to help himself to the money bag. So he was in charge of the money. As people donated to the ministry and whatnot, he's taking care of that. And he's stealing from the money to use for himself. Not only that, we know that Judas is going to betray Jesus. And he's going to sell out Jesus, not for a $50,000 expensive bottle of nard, but for 30 pieces of silver, which is about $1,000 in our day. So think about that. He's mad and upset at this large donation and yet he sells Jesus out for just a fraction of that cost. And so more than meets the eye is happening here with with Judas's comment. I mean, he super spiritualizes the money situation, which is really, really easy to do when you think about it. Judas says, hey, 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 wait a minute, guys, seriously. I mean, shouldn't we have used, you know, that instead of on Jesus's feet and giving it to him, Shouldn't we have used that to like help poor people out? I mean, nobody tells him to shut up. Nobody, and, and probably the reality is some of the disciples probably looked right at Jesus like, oh, that's a good point, you know? Should we have done that, Jesus? And Jesus is like, bro, shut up. Like, you don't get it, man. It's like, you don't get it. She realizes that I'm only here for a little while and you're gonna have the poor here forever. And so what she's done he, he accepts what, what, what she's done here. He rewards, he, he affirms the fact that this was the right thing for her to do. In fact, it's kind of foreshadowing, most theologians believe, the death of Jesus. And so, so she's gonna keep maybe some of it for his actual burial in a few days. Because by the way, chapter 12 through the rest of the book, the, the next 10 chapters are all about the very last week of Jesus's life. So we call that the Passion Week. So the first 11 chapters are about the major miracles that Jesus performs. And then the last half of the book is all about the last week. And so here from this day, Judas is about to betray Jesus just three or four days from this night, from this afternoon. And so so Judas is going to show up in your life and he's going to try to distract you from sacrificing the things that God wants you to sacrifice for his glory. Let's think about it for a minute. One of the things that a Judas will do in your life is he'll come into your life and instead of like affirming the sacrifice for God, he'll say things like be reasonable, you know? And so you've experienced this in your life. Maybe you're married and, and, and one of you, maybe your husband is like, I think we should give. I think we should be sacrificial and, and I think we should really step out and start tithing and give a percentage every week. And, and then the wife is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like I'm all for church. I'm all for Jesus. But let's be reasonable here. We can't give that much money to Jesus. Some of you have kids that are coming on Wednesday nights and and your kids are actually getting it. And they're like diving into the Bible. They're diving into the relationship with Jesus and they're talking about Jesus. And and, and as a mom and a dad, you're like, hey, look, I'm glad you're not doing drugs and I'm glad you're not drinking alcohol and all that stuff. But seriously, let's be reasonable. We're not going to go to church every week. I mean, there's going to be late UT games, and it's going to be tiring, and we're going to be frustrated. And, 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 and so not every week, you know. Let's be reasonable. See, there's a Judas that's going to step into your life from time to time as you begin to focus more and more on Jesus. And it could be your spouse. It could be a friend at church. 
and they're gonna disguise what they say. It's gonna even sound spiritual, but it's gonna come to you as be reasonable. Sometimes a Judas is gonna come into your life and he's gonna, he's gonna want you to act entitled because Judas is acting here like he is entitled because someone who is entitled believes that God owes them something. And Judas definitely believes here based on his actions that God owes him or that Jesus owes him. Look, I'm following you around, Jesus. I'm doing all this stuff. And, and you know, I'm going to take some money here. But it's not stealing. I deserve this because I'm working hard, you know. And so he, 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 he's able to kind of manipulate his thought patterns here to, to you know, justify what he's doing. And, and so he's, he's, there's going to be a Judas in your life that's going to want you to, you know, be entitled. God owes you. You know, you're here every week or you serve or you do this and, and you're a pretty good person. And so God owes you. And so Mary comes to Jesus with this mentality that I'm going to give extravagantly. And yet Judas comes to Jesus with the, well, Jesus owes me. Finally, you're going to have a Judas in your life that wants you to be cynical. Cynical just means be sarcastic, be pessimistic, have a negative viewpoint in life. And so Judas has this answer and he makes it sound so high and so spiritual. But can't you hear his pride in this statement? This should have been used for poor people and it makes himself sound so spiritual. I mean, it's so easy to spiritualize money situations when, when, when you look at it, you know, on the surface. Like, Trent, we don't really need to buy land. We don't need to buy an auditorium. Let's just use what we got. And instead, why don't we give that money to poor people? I mean, doesn't that sound so holy, you know? Hey, instead of using all that money on those students, how about we use that money to take care of orphans? Hello? There's a lot of them. He's so spiritual, so holy, you know? And so we've got to be discerning, you know? We've got to have some maturity about ourselves to recognize the Judas in our life. Because a Judas will mask their motives with what seems to be a holy or righteous statement. Hey, 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 listen, don't, don't give your husband respect. Hey, he needs to earn that respect. If he truly loves you, he should, he should be like Jesus and, and, and he should be sacrificial to you and then you can respect him. Hey, that makes sense. And yet, when we read the Bible, we see that when we give respect, we give it not because somebody earns it. Jesus doesn't love us because we earned it. He loves us because he decided and chose to give it. That's why it's called grace. And that's why as a believer, we're called to give grace freely, not because somebody earns it. We recognize that when we use resources to, 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 to buy land, we build the church. As we grow the church, you know, hundreds of people, thousands of people's lives are transformed. More people in the community are helped. And so we follow and trust God's plan. And we, we, we understand that there are going to be critics. There are going to be pessimistic people. There are going to be criticism that comes when we step out to worship and sacrificially give and sacrificially worship Jesus. There's no doubt Judas worshiped money. He was a thief and he sold Jesus out for a thousand dollars. And so his motives are later examined. His motives are exposed. But in the moment, it's not always so easy. But we have to understand that when people are being a Judas in our life and distracting us from being sacrificial to Jesus, 
for his church, they're after their own personal gain. If they're critics, if they're negative, if they're pessimistic, you need to take a step back and examine the full picture here. Because most likely their personal gain is is that they're going to get the approval of other people. They're going to be honored by other people because, oh, they're so holy. Or, oh, they've got so many, you know, good things to say. And the reality is they're a Judas that's distracting you and masquerading as righteous. But Jesus would call revolting. Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Where's your treasure? Where's your heart at today? For many of us, I think that what we sacrifice most for is what reveals what we're most in love with. And so understanding that, we realize worship requires sacrifice. Um, For some people in the room, you're worshiping money. And you're sacrificing money for anything and everything other than God. And that's idol worship. Secondly, worship requires focus. Let's look at the Bible again and let's jump to uh, verses 12 through 15. It says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You see, worship requires focus. Let me explain what I mean. Um, Jewish historians believe that at this time for the Passover, there would have been 2.5 to 3 million people coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So you're talking about millions of people here. And Jesus decides to go to the city at this time to celebrate. And as he comes into the city, um, the people all gather. And as they gather, they are bringing uh, palm branches with them and shaking palm branches and saying, Hosanna, which means God save us. And they're excited. This is an experience. This is exciting. Thousands of people waving palm branches. I remember as a kid thinking, why palm branches? That is so weird. And then I would go to football games and see grown men shaking pom-poms in the air. And I would think, that is weird too, you know. But we accept that. You know, that's okay for us today. And so, you know, that's kind of the, an act of celebration. And that, those are some of the ways that we do it. This is how they did it. And so they're excited. This is an event. This is excitement. It is electric. Why? God save us. Because they see Jesus coming. They believe that he's the Messiah. And they believe that Jesus is going to come in and he's going to drive out the Romans out of their city. And they're going to take their city back. And the Messiah is going to save them and take care of them and, 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 and beat up all the bad guys. And it's going to be theirs again. However... Jesus doesn't come in as a conquering king on, you know, a studly black horse with a sword in his hand, you know, and painted like Braveheart, ready to kill all the Romans. He comes in on a donkey's colt. <laughs> Why does he do this? Well, he's fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah 9.9, which says that he comes humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is coming into the city as a humble prince of peace, not as the conquering king yet. He will do that one day. But at this point, he's coming in as the prince of peace. He's coming in humbly. Jesus always shows up in your life in a way that you don't expect it. And so think of it like this. A donkey in East East Tennessee is, you know, is a certain size. But a donkey in, in, in the, you know, first century Jewish culture would have been very small. 
Not only that, but it's a colt of a donkey. So it's, it's a really small animal. All right, I want you to envision like a big German shepherd here, right? This is essentially what he's riding on. Like my feet would have been dragging on the ground as I rode this, this small animal into the city. And so as the Prince of Peace, he's, he's coming and the crowd is hype. The, uh, the crowd is electric. I mean, it's, it, it's just like the worship at the Swift concert. I mean, it was hype, man. We, everybody was into it. It was exciting. And yet everybody was there for the experience. Everybody was there to potentially worship Taylor, not Jesus. It's definitely not Jesus. And in the same way, these people aren't bringing authentic worship to Jesus. They're saying, God, save us. Save us. You know? And in four short days, they realize that Jesus is not going to drive out the Romans. So what do they start yelling then? Crucifying. Crucifying. Why? Because empty worship comes to God with the attitude that you owe me and you better do what I need you to do. And if you don't give me or do what I think you need to do, then I'm out. I'll give you one last shot, God. I'll show up. And if I show up and I don't see you doing anything, if you're not writing stuff in the clouds, if you're not saving, if you're not blessing, if you're not doing, then I'm done. I'm out. This is empty worship. And this is what the crowd is bringing to Jesus at this time. He's not impressed by that, by the way. Hop down to verse 20. Here's, what, here's where we really truly begin to see authentic, focused worship. In verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. Now this is the picture of focus in worship that I want you to get today. When we come to Jesus in authentic worship of him, we come with the mindset that we want to see him. We want to experience him. If you're coming for the lights and the show and the experience and the energy and the, and the good feeling, then you're not worshiping Jesus. You're worshiping an experience. You're worshiping a feeling, an emotion. It made me feel good. It made me feel excited. But if that's what you're after, then you're not after Jesus. You're after an experience, and that is idol worship. So when you go home today, and you wake up tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and you open up the word of God and you read the word of God on your own and you're praying and you're seeking truth from God's word. That is authentically coming to the word of God saying, I wanna see you, Jesus. I wanna see you. When we walk in on Sunday morning and when the music is played, our mind and our heart is focused on Jesus. I wanna see you Jesus I want to sing to you Jesus and so I'll lift my hands I'll come forward and pray because my focus is on Jesus not what people are doing around me not what not what's happening you know in my life at home not the problems that I have I want to see Jesus I come here to see Jesus and so whether it's the giving portion or the prayer time like we are focused on Jesus as I'm preaching the word of God, our focus is on Jesus. We want to hear from you, Jesus. We want to experience you, Jesus. And so I can never go to an opportunity like this, a Sunday morning, and walk away and think that God didn't speak to me. Ah, it's all right. God didn't speak to me. I, I didn't know. Ah, it's okay. If I didn't hear, it's my own fault. Because I want to see Jesus. If my attitude is I want to see him, I want to experience him, then my focus is on him. 
Thirdly, worship requires death. Let's look at verse 23. Here's how Jesus responds to them. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus says a death needs to take place if we're truly going to worship him. What does he mean? Elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus says in Matthew 16 that we must, if we're going to come after him, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. Here he says the seed must die. If you want to find life, you've got to lose your life. So the reality is if we want to experience true worship in our life, true worship of Jesus, then we've got to die to our self. We've got to die to our pride. We've got to die to what we want. And we've got to die to our own agenda. And we've got to pick up the agenda of Jesus Christ in our life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor in Germany during the Nazi period, once said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You see, we want to breeze past that in Christianity today. We want to breeze past the lose your life, die to yourself, deny yourself part. And we think that, you know what, when I come to Jesus, I think I'll come to Jesus and I'll take the level three Christianity, not the level one. It's okay if my mansion is a little bit smaller. That's no big deal. I just want to get in. And so we have this category of a Christian. We have this category of like, okay, I'll take that not so committed part as long as I can still get some cool stuff and get heaven. I don't really want that sold out, 100% die to self Christianity. See, the problem is though, coming to Jesus is not a negotiation. You don't come to Jesus and say, hey, I'll agree to this if you agree to that. Jesus says, come and die a death. Die to yourself. And this doesn't make sense. You know, we think if I, if I come to Jesus and I lose my life, then I'll find it. That just this doesn't make sense to us. But it makes perfect sense if you worship Jesus. Because you cannot serve your kingdom and his kingdom at the same time. You cannot serve your master and Jesus as master at the same time. You cannot give glory to yourself and glory to God at the same time time. You cannot serve your rules and God's rules. You can't submit to your way and to his way at the same time. It's an impossibility. So when we come to him, he's calling us to die, to deny ourselves. And so what does that mean? Let me give you a few things to help us here. What does denying yourself mean? What does dying to yourself mean? What does losing your life really look like? Think of it like this, very simple, like we're going to set aside our wants we're going to set aside our goals. We're going to set aside our desires. And we're going to pursue his desires, what his plan is, what his purpose for life is. And when we do that, the promise here is that we will bear much fruit and the Father will honor us. A self-centered life is always focused on itself, isn't it? I mean, that's ultimately what pride is about. It's ultimately our battle with, with relationships in our life today is that we are constantly self-centered. 
We are absorbed with ourselves. I mean, that's the number one problem in your marriage today because, because you're just self-centered. You want what you want, not what they want. You don't want to compromise. And so self-centeredness, self-absorption can become an idol in our life. And the idol is ourselves, our own happiness, our own agenda. And Jesus says, deny yourself, which means to deny your selfishness. Uh, think about it like this. Um, we all, you know, think about a hungry wolf, all right? Like a, just, just a, a wolf in the wilderness that will eat anything and everything that it wants. And inside your own heart, there is a ravenous wolf that wants to eat and do everything that you want to do. And so if, <clears throat> if I'm going to overcome that wolf in my life, then I've got to deny the food that feeds that wolf, right? And so if, if I'm going to deny that portion of the, the beast inside of me, then I'm going to begin to deny the self-centeredness within me. And so here's what that looks like. That means that I need to maybe perhaps stop reading the magazines and the books that stimulate those bad thoughts in my life. That's kind of feeding the beast within me, causing me to be, you know, um, maybe greedy or maybe materialistic. And so I'm going to deny myself those books, those magazines. I'm going to deny myself, you know, daydreaming about having more. Because we all have a temptation to kind of wander off in our mind and wish that we had what our neighbor had or what this guy has or, or what this family does. And so, so we're going to deny ourselves that daydreaming moment because we don't want to covet. We're going to deny ourselves from watching movies and TV shows that, that feed those impulses in our life. We're going to deny listening to music that makes selfishness seem normal. So I'm going to stay away. I'm going to deny that appetite. I'm not going to feed the beast within me. We're going to deny hanging out with people that actually feed the wolf inside of us. So we have relationships with people that, that when we're with them, it feeds the materialistic beast within us. Because they dress a certain way, they have certain things, and when we're with them, it, wish, it, it, just, it just feeds that beast within us. There's a drive and a hunger for what they have. And so maybe we need to deny ourselves that relationship. We're going to deny talking about people in ways that put them down. So we're going to deny the negative conversation. We're going to deny the gossip and the criticism that leads us to a self-absorbed life. Dying to self, by the way, is not optional for a believer of Jesus. It's not optional. This is a command that he gives to us. And so he says, when the seed dies, the seed is able to bear much fruit, but it it, it, it takes a death in order for life to take place. Jesus died, but it brought us life. And so for us, when we die to ourselves, Jesus gives us the abundant life. So we have to constantly be on our toes. We have to constantly be overcoming and killing the self-centeredness that is in our life. Worship requires death. When we receive Christ, there is a death to self that takes place immediately. And then as a believer, there's a death that needs to take place every day of our life because we are continually dying to our selfishness. Number four, worship requires the glory of God. Look with me at verse 27. This is what he says next. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You see, for Jesus, 
Worship was all about bringing glory to his father. It was all about bringing glory to God. In this moment, he could have brought glory to what people wanted him to do and, and, and saved him from the Romans. He could have killed them all. But his, his focus was the glory of God. His focus was to bring God glory in this moment. This is the very reason and very purpose why he was even on earth. Now hop down to verse 41. Yeah, 41 is good. He said, it says this, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Translation there is... In us, there is a desire to please people, to be recognized by people, to be affirmed by people, to be lifted up by people, more so than for us to bring glory to God. Instead of giving credit to him, instead of lifting God up, instead of giving Jesus the worship and honor that is due his name, we like to receive the credit. We like to receive the attention. We like to receive the recognition. And so there is a legitimate fear here by these people. If I truly give my life to Jesus, they may kick me out of church, they may kick me out of the synagogue, and and because of that fear, they didn't confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So the reality is many of you in here face some legitimate fears if you say yes to Jesus, if you really worship Jesus with all of your heart. I'll never forget leading a guy to Christ who um, was coming out of a Muslim background. His whole family was Muslim. And he said, if I make this decision, my family will disown me. They will, my father will, will, will be disgraced. Uh, uh, recently, a, a young girl said, if I, she accepted Christ and she said, if I get baptized, my grandmother told me, and she was living with her grandma being taken care of by her grandmother. If I get baptized, my grandmother will disown me. Both of them said yes to Jesus, both were baptized. Why? Because ultimately they wanted to bring glory to God. They didn't want to get the the approval of family members or the approval of other people. You see, this is a reality for us. If you're in leadership, you've realized this. You can't please everybody. You know, you, you can't please everyone. It's an impossibility. And we say that and you're like, yeah, he's right on that one. You can't please everybody. And then we go to work and we make decisions that reflect a desire to please everybody. (laughs) Why is that drive so strong within us? Because we want approval. We want affirmation. We want people to pat us on the back. We want people to say good job. We want people to worship us instead of giving glory to God. Because in life, I mean, think about my position. I wish I could please everybody in here with all the decisions I make, but it's an impossibility. So I have a decision to make. I can make decisions on how to lead this church based on what I think is gonna make you happy or I can make decisions based upon what I believe and the elders believe is gonna make God happy. Now, you can imagine the quandary that puts me in. If I make decisions that are unpopular but I wholly believe and the elders wholly believe this is what God wants us to do, some of you are gonna get upset. So the tendency for leadership, and you face this as well, is recognizing the consequences of decisions. My tendency is going to always be, man, but if I make that call, so-and-so may leave. So-and-so is gonna be upset. 
so-and-so may stop giving. And let me tell you something. If I allow what so-and-so may or may not do, determine or even slightly veer the decisions that I make to lead this church, I am worshiping an idol. And so my daily prayer and the, and, and the elders' daily prayer in humility is, God, we want to follow you. No matter what the consequences are, no matter if it looks ridiculous, no matter if it's you know, something that everybody's going to approve or not approve, we want to go where you want us to go and we want to do what you want us to do. Don't forget, had I listened to the crowd when this church was planted, you and I would not be sitting here today in this church. There were many critics. There were Judases everywhere. There were people complaining constantly. We don't need to spend money out there in Maryville. We need to spend money right here in our community. We needed to keep it here and we need to do this and our kids need this and da 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 But praise God, we listened to what God wanted to do. Praise God because we're here today. You see, you're gonna be tempted along your journey to please your spouse, to please your kids, to please your family, to please people in your life instead of pleasing God. Let me just tell you something. Your ultimate purpose in this life is to bring glory to Jesus and enjoy him. It's not to bring glory to yourself. It's not to please people in your life. It's to bring glory to God. So what this book says and what this book shows us and how this book calls us to live our life ought to be the priority, ought to be what wakes us up in the morning and what drives every decision that you and I make. And so when it comes to a life of worship, we've got a decision to make. Are we gonna live self-centered? Are we gonna live self-absorbed? Is church here and does church exist for my benefit or for the benefit of God's kingdom and God's glory and God's mission? We gotta even retrain our brain here. Why do we even come on Sundays? Is it, is it to be served or do we come on Sunday to serve and to worship because we're here for him? Unfortunately, a lot of people come to church for themselves and we need to retrain our thinking and realize that Jesus is asking us for sacrificial worship. He's asking us for a focused worship. He's asking us to die to our selfishness and he's asking us to bring glory to God in every area of our life. And so the reality is, if you look at all the details of your life and you truly look at it today, and you look at where you're giving money, and you can't remember the last time you gave to church, if you're looking at your bank account, and you're realizing that you're not giving a percentage determined and thoughtfully established in your life to give to the church, then you're worshiping money. If you're not thoughtfully thinking through what your focus is on Sunday morning, if you're not thoughtfully bringing glory to God in your life, then the reality is we need to figure out, you need to figure out, who it is and what it is you're worshiping. Because Jesus calls us to die to ourselves. And for many of us today, that could be the very reason why the blessing of God, the hand of God is not upon your life today because you're walking in disobedience. So as we discover what it is, as God brings it to our mind, we put it to death, we stop feeding the beast and we start walking faithfully with him. Would you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer my prayer this morning for you and my encouragement for you today is that you would indeed ask God 
to show you the areas of your life that you are worshiping above him? What is it in your life that you're putting above him? For some of you, you're gonna realize that you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. For those of you in that room that would say, that's me, I wanna encourage you as you walk out these back doors, there's a room to the left called the prayer and care room. And it's in that room that I wanna encourage you to meet with some folks that are in there that can't wait to see you. I mean, they are here because they wanna help you make this decision. Maybe you just need prayer. Maybe there's something that you need to confess. Maybe there's just some encouragement that you need. Folks in that room are here for you. I wanna encourage you to go there. For believers in the room, maybe God has brought something to your attention today. Maybe there are some things in your life that you're putting above God. What are those things? What are those things that you need to confess to him right now? And the best thing that you could do is to drop to your knees to say, Lord, I'm here. I'm wholly yours. I pour myself out for you, to you. And, and, and the reality is, is that God is here looking, desiring leaders who are humbly ready to, to do some foot washing, money giving, death to self living, sold out sacrificial followers of Jesus who are willing to serve and to put him first in their life. And he wants to do that so that you would bear much fruit. Heavenly Father, in this place, there are so many individuals and lives with so many different situations and lives taking place. You know it all. You're in control of every situation. But Lord, we know that some of us are missing the abundant life today because we're worshiping idols or that we're listening to a Judas in our life that's distracting us from following you. Lord, we pray that you would reveal that person to us. We pray, God, that you would reveal the idols in our life that we are worshiping today. We would confess those. We would run from those, God. And we would pick you up to bring you glory and to serve you wholeheartedly. May this be our prayer every day this week. May these words from John chapter 12 ring clear in our heart all week as we seek to follow and trust you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We will see you next Sunday for John chapter 13. Have a blessed week. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.